Part five of the Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. The Song of the Lark by Willa Seibert Cather. Part five, section five. Thea was to sail on Tuesday at noon, and on Saturday Fred Ottenburg arranged for her passage while she and Dr. Archie went shopping. With rugs and sea clothes she was already provided. Fred had got everything of that sort she needed for the voyage up from Veracruz. On Sunday afternoon B went to see the Harsanyis. When she returned to her hotel she found a note from Ottenburg saying that he had called and would come again tomorrow. On Monday morning, while she was at breakfast, Fred came in. She knew by his hurried, distracted air as he entered the dining-room that something had gone wrong. He had just got a telegram from home. His mother had been thrown from her carriage and hurt, a concussion of some sort, and she was unconscious. He was leaving for St. Louis that night on the eleven o'clock train. He had a great deal to attend to during the day. He would come that evening, if he might, and stay with her until train time, while she was doing her packing. Scarcely waiting for her consent, he hurried away. All day Thee was somewhat cast down. She was sorry for Fred, and she missed the feeling that she was the one person in his mind. He had scarcely looked at her when they exchanged words at the breakfast table. She felt as if she were set aside, and she did not seem so important even to herself as she had yesterday. Certainly, she reflected, it was high time that she began to take care of herself again. Dr. Archie came for dinner, but she sent him away early, telling him that she would be ready to go to the boat with him at half-past ten the next morning. When she went upstairs, she looked gloomily at the open trunk in her sitting-room and at the trays piled on the sofa. She stood at the window and watched a quiet snowstorm spending itself over the city. More than anything else, falling snow always made her think of Moonstone, of the Kohler's garden, of Thor's sled, of dressing by lamplight, and starting off to school before the paths were broken. When Fred came, he looked tired, and he took her hand almost without seeing her. I'm so sorry, Fred. Have you had any more word? She was still unconscious at four this afternoon. It doesn't look very encouraging. He approached the fire and warmed his hands. He seemed to have contracted, and he had not at all his habitual ease of manner. Poor mother, he exclaimed. Nothing like this should have happened to her. She has so much pride of person. She's not at all an old woman, you know. She's never got beyond vigorous and rather dashing middle age. He turned abruptly to Thee, and for the first time really looked at her. How badly things come out! She'd have liked you for a daughter-in-law. Oh, you'd have fought like the devil, but you'd have respected each other. He sank into a chair and thrust his feet out to the fire. Still, he went on thoughtfully, seeming to address the ceiling, it might have been bad for you. Our big German houses, our good German cooking, you might have got lost in the upholstery. That substantial comfort might take the temper out of you, dull your edge. Yes, he sighed, I guess you were meant for the jolt of the breakers. I guess I'll get plenty of jolt, Thee murmured, returning to her trunk. I'm rather glad I'm not staying over until tomorrow, Fred reflected. I think it's easier for me to glide out like this 
I feel now as if everything were rather casual anyhow. A thing like that dulls one's feelings. Thee, standing by her trunk, made no reply. Presently he shook himself and rose. Want me to put those trays in for you? No, thank you. I'm not ready for them yet. Fred strolled over to the sofa, lifted a scarf from one of the trays, and stood abstractedly, drawing it through his fingers. You've been so kind these last few days, Thee, that I began to hope you might soften a little, that you might ask me to come over and see you this summer. If you thought that, you were mistaken, she said slowly. I've hardened, if anything, but I shan't carry any grudge away with me, if you mean that. He dropped the scarf. And there's nothing, nothing at all you'll let me do? Yes, there is one thing, and it's a good deal to ask. If I get knocked out, or never get on, I'd like you to see that Dr. Archie gets his money back. I'm taking three thousand dollars of his. Why, of course I shall. You may dismiss that from your mind. How fussy you are about money, Fee. You make such a point of it. He turned sharply and walked to the windows. Fee sat down in the chair he had quitted. It's only poor people who feel that way about money, and who are really honest, she said gravely. Sometimes I think that to be really honest, you must have been so poor that you've been tempted to steal. To what? To steal. I used to be, when I first went to Chicago, and saw all the things in the big stores there. Never anything big, but little things, the kind I'd never seen before and could never afford. I did take something once, before I knew it. Fred came toward her. For the first time she had his whole attention in the degree to which she was accustomed to having it. Did you? What was it? he asked with interest. A sachet, a little blue silk bag of orris root powder. There was a whole counterful of them, marked down to fifty cents. I'd never seen any before, and they seemed irresistible. I took one up and wandered about the store with it. Nobody seemed to notice, so I carried it off. Fred laughed. Crazy child! Why, your things always smell of orris. Is it a pennant? No, I love it. But I saw that the firm didn't lose anything by me. I went back and bought it there whenever I had a quarter to spend. I've got a lot to take to Arizona. I made it up to them. I'll bet you did, Fred took her hand. Why didn't I find you that first winter? I'd have loved you just as you came. Thee shook her head. No, you wouldn't, but you might have found me amusing. The Harsanyes said yesterday afternoon that I wore such a funny cape, and that my shoes always squeaked. They think I've improved. I told them it was your doing if I had, and then they looked scared. Did you sing for Harsanyi? Yes, he thinks I've improved there, too. He said nice things to me. Oh, he was very nice. He agrees with you about my going to Lehman, if she'll take me. He came out to the elevator with me, after we had said good-bye. He said something nice out there, too, but seemed sad. What was it that he said? He said, when people, serious people, believe in you, they give you some of their best. So take care of it, Miss Kronberg. Then he waved his hands and went back. If you sang, I wish you had taken me along. Did you sing well? Fred turned from her and went back to the window. I wonder when I shall hear you sing again. He picked up a bunch of violets and smelled them. You know, you're leaving me like this. Well, it's almost inhuman to be able to do it so kindly, 
and unconditionally. I suppose it is. It was almost inhuman to be able to leave home, too, the last time when I knew it was for good. But all the same, I cared a great deal more than anybody else did. I lived through it. I have no choice now. No matter how much it breaks me up, I have to go. Do I seem to enjoy it? Fred bent over her trunk and picked up something which proved to be a score, clumsily bound. What's this? Did you ever try to sing this? He opened it, and on the engraved title page read Wunsch's inscription, Einst, O oh Wonder. He looked up sharply at B. Wunsch gave me that when he went away. I've told you about him, my old teacher in Moonstone. He loved that opera. Fred went to the fireplace, the book under his arm, singing softly. Einst, O oh Wonder, entblend meinem Rabe Ayana Blum Ashu Meine Herzen. You have no idea at all where he is, Thee? He leaned against the mantel and looked down at her. No, I wish I had. He may be dead by this time. That was five years ago, and he used himself hard. Miss Kohler was always afraid he would die off alone somewhere and be stuck under the prairie. When we last heard of him, he was in Kansas. If he were to be found, I'd like to do something for him. I seem to get a good deal of him from this. He opened the book again, where he kept the place with his finger, and scrutinized the purple ink. How like a German! Had he ever sung the song for you? No, I didn't know where the words were from until once, when Harsanyi sang it for me, I recognized them. Fred closed the book. Let me see, what was your noble brakeman's name? He looked up with surprise. Ray, Ray Kennedy. Ray Kennedy, he laughed. It couldn't well have been better. Wunsch and Dr. Archie and Ray and I, he told them off on his fingers, your whistling posts. You haven't done so badly. We've backed you as we could, some in our weakness and some in our might, in your dark hours, and you'll have them. You may like to remember us. He smiled whimsically and dropped the score into the trunk. You are taking that with you? Surely I am. I haven't so many keepsakes that I can afford to leave that. I haven't got many that I value so highly. That you value so highly? Fred echoed her gravity playfully. You are delicious when you fall into your vernacular. He laughed half to himself. What's the matter with that? Isn't it perfectly good English? Perfectly good moonstone, my dear. Like the ready-made clothes that hang in the windows, made to fit everybody and fit nobody. A phrase that can be used on all occasions. Oh, he started across the room again. That's one of the fine things about your going. You'll be with the right sort of people, and you'll learn a good, live, warm German that will be like yourself. You'll get a new speech full of shades and color like your voice, alive like your mind. It will be almost like being born again, Thee. She was not offended. Fred had said such things to her before, and she wanted to learn. In the natural course of things, she would never have loved a man from whom she could not learn a great deal. Harsanyi said once, she remarked thoughtfully, that if one became an artist, one had to be born again, and that one owed nothing to anybody. Exactly. And when I see you again, I shall not see you, but your daughter. May I? He held up his cigarette case questioningly, and then began to smoke, taking up again the song which ran in his head. 
Deutschland schimmert auf Schädem, purpurblatchen Adelaide. I have half an hour with you yet, and then exit Fred. He walked about the room, smoking and singing the words under his breath. You'll like the voyage, he said abruptly. That first approach to a foreign shore, stealing up on it and finding it, there's nothing like it. It wakes up everything that's asleep in you. You won't mind my writing to some people in Berlin. They'll be nice to you. I wish you would. Thee gave a deep sigh. I wish one could look ahead and see what is coming to one. Oh, no. Fred was smoking nervously. That would never do. It's the uncertainty that makes one try. You've never had any sort of chance. And now I fancy you'll make it up to yourself. You'll find the way to let yourself out in one long flight. He put her hand on her heart. And then drop like the rocks we used to throw anywhere. She left the chair and went over to the sofa, hunting for something in the trunk trays. When she came back, she found Fred sitting in her place. Here are some handkerchiefs of yours. I've kept one or two. They're larger than mine and useful if one has a headache. Thank you. How nicely they smell of your things. He looked at the white squares for a moment and then put them in his pocket. He kept the low chair, and as she stood beside him, he took her hands and sat looking intently at them, as if he were examining them for some special purpose, tracing the long round fingers with the tips of his own. Ordinarily, you know, there are reefs that a man catches to and keeps his nose above water, but this is a case by itself. There seems to be no limit as to how much I can be in love with you. I keep going. He did not lift his eyes from her fingers, which he continued to study with the same fervor. Every kind of stringed instrument there is plays in your hands. See, he whispered, pressing them to his face. She dropped beside him and slipped into his arms, shutting her eyes and lifting her cheek to his. Tell me one thing, Fred whispered. You said that night on the boat, when I first told you, that if you could, you would crush it all up in your hands and throw it into the sea. Would you, all those weep? She shook her head. Answer me, would you? No, I was angry then. I'm not now. I'd never give them up. Don't make me pay too much. In that embrace they lived over again all the others. When Thee drew away from him, she dropped her face in her hands. You are good to me, she breathed. You are. Rising to his feet, he put his hands under her elbows and lifted her gently. He drew her toward the door with him. Get all you can. Be generous with yourself. Don't stop short of splendid things. I want them for you more than I want anything else, more than I want one splendid thing for myself. I can't help feeling that you'll gain, somehow, by my losing so much, that you'll gain the very thing I lose. Take care of her, as Harsanyi said. She's wonderful. He kissed her and went out of the door without looking back, just as if he were coming again tomorrow. He went quickly into her bedroom. She brought out an armful of muslin things, knelt down, and began to lay them in the trays. Suddenly she stopped, dropped forward, and leaned against the open trunk, her head on her arms. The tears fell on the dark old carpet. It came over her how many people must have said goodbye and been unhappy in that room. Other people, before her time, had hired this room to cry in. Strange rooms and strange streets and faces. How sick at heart they made one. Why was she going so far, when what she wanted was some familiar place to hide in, 
the rock house, her little room in Moonstone, her own bed. Oh, how good it would be to lie down in that little bed, to cut the nerve that kept one struggling, that pulled one on and on, to sink into peace there, with all the family safe and happy downstairs. After all, she was a Moonstone girl, one of the preacher's children. Everything else was in Fred's imagination. Why was she called upon to take such chances? Any safe, humdrum work that did not compromise her would be better. But if she failed now, she would lose her soul. There was nowhere to fall, after one took that step, except into abysses of wretchedness. She knew what abysses, for she could still hear the old man playing in the snowstorm. It was released in her like a passion of longing. Every nerve in her body thrilled to it. It brought her to her feet, carried her somehow to bed, and into troubled sleep. That night she taught in Moonstone again. She beat her pupils in hideous rages. She kept on beating them. She sang at funerals and struggled at the piano with Harsanyi. In one dream she was looking into a hand-glass and thinking that she was getting better looking. When the glass began to grow smaller and smaller, and her own reflection to shrink, until she realized that she was looking into Ray Kennedy's eyes, seeing her face in that look of his, which she could never forget. All at once the eyes were Fred Ottenberg's and not Ray's. All night she heard the shrieking of trains, whistling in and out of Moonstone, as she used to hear them in her sleep when they blew shrill in the winter air. But tonight they were terrifying, the spectral, faded trains that raced with death about which the old woman from the depot used to pray. In the morning she wakened breathless after a struggle with Mrs. Livery Johnson's daughter. She started up with a bound, threw the blankets back, and sat on the edge of the bed, her nightdress open, her long braids hanging over her bosom, blinking in the daylight. After all, it was not too late. She was only twenty years old, and the boat sailed at noon. There was still time. End of Part 5 Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah.